0: Welcome to Cruxcast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview, and if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We talk today to Jeff Klender, the CEO of UR Energy. They are one of the two uranium companies who submitted the 232 petition. We talked to Jeff about cost-cutting exercises up until now and in the future. His view on the timing of the turn for the uranium market may surprise you. And also his feedback on the recent DOE announcement of the 150 million dollar per year subsidy for the uranium space.
1: Enjoy the podcast.
0: Hi Jeff, how are you, sir?
1: Doing great. Thanks for having me on today.
0: Well, no, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, you're kind of uh, one of the big big names in the in the space. We've been keen to talk to you. Here you are today. I wonder, Jeff, if you, could you start off and give us a one minute overview of the business, so people sort of put that in context and we'll kind of pick it up from there.
1: You bet. Well, your energy, we started now, uh, come the end of the month, we will we'll mark 16 years since I, I and a couple of other guys founded this company. And I don't mind telling you, we spent the first uh, seven, eight, nine years as a permitting licensing story. We finally got our record of decision in October of 2012. We spent the next 9 months building out our processing plant, but if we completed it on time and on budget, spent the next 2 months in commissioning. And we've been producing now since August of 2013. So, for the last 6.5-years, we've not only been producing, but we've emerged as the lowest cost producer globally outside of Kazakhstan. Uh, I won't go into the details as to why Kazakhstan is the lowest cost producer, but it sure helps when you devalue your currency by 90%. So uh, anybody would can look like an economic marvel when they can do that and still sell into the U.S. market. But uh, beyond that, um, of course, we uh, we were, I think, forward-looking. Our board was, and so was I, back in 2011 through 2015. We put contracts in place that. Uh, we still have and are still delivering into to this day in 2020 and a couple into next year in 2021. That's given us consistent cash flows. But more importantly, it's allowed us to navigate this minefield without blowing up our shareholders. And by that, I mean blowing up the cap structure. Uh, we've only raised 22 million dollars since Fukushima occurred and that'll be nine years come next week so I think that that's one of the strongest points about our company by the way I am the largest shareholder in this company unlike most of virtually any of my peers I've got three and a half million dollars of my own money in this so I am the gatekeeper I hate issuing shares and we are a very shareholder friendly company thanks very
0: much good summary. Can we kick off? I'm not, there's a lot of topics to, to discuss, and you know right you're, you're well known for having a view on, on on these things, strong views on these things. Can we just kind of kick off with the um, Section Two Three Two petition? You were one of one of the two companies that submitted that petition, along with Energy Fuels. Mark Chalmers, who we've That's spoken correct. to a few times on this program. I've, I've read the press releases. We're talking about a- a- adversarial behavior in the market and security and so forth. I mean, what, what was the, what was your actual driver for that petition?
1: Well, for me, the driver was is that I met with Rick Perry in his offices along with the UPA, the Uranium Producers of America, and that was in July of 2017. Before we left the the building, I decided that I would start the Section Two Thirty Two. We actually uh, we we did it. We made the decision before we ever hit the curb that morning. And uh, what, why we, do you say why do you
0: say it? What had what had been said in those meetings? That made, made what was said you? in the
1: meeting was that Rick Perry acknowledged that when we were making the case that look we're dying, we uh, were the large we were formerly the largest producer of uranium on the planet back in the early 1980s, late 1970s, producing 43 44 million pounds a year, meeting all of our own personal needs. Unfortunately, that changed over the years, and it really changed with the accelerated production coming out of Kazakhstan. Uh, We believe that it is very, very dangerous to become this reliant on Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. And so, we filed a Section 232 basically opposing that and suggesting that we needed to preserve the fuel cycle in the United States. And we thought that the best, most benign way to do that would be by simply imposing a quota, saying to the U.S. utilities, you can go out there and you can buy whatever you want from whomever you please, but you have to buy 20 25% from domestic producers. We've got to keep the fuel cycle alive. And Rick Perry agreed. He used the term, this is a national security issue no less than a half a dozen times in that meeting, and effectively said to me, bring me a 232. Because he wanted something that would bypass a uh, deeply divided and, and extremely partisan Congress. Of course, everyone knows that characterizes our extremely dysfunctional government here in the United States. And uh, put, give me something that I can put on the President's desk. We did just that with 232. Now, unfortunately, on July 12th of last year, we did not get the outcome that we had hoped for. But uh, nonetheless, it gave birth to the working group, and we are still. We and we've seen positive outcome from the working group. Obviously, the line item that went into Trump's 2021 fiscal year budget, that's a good start. But we are now waiting for uh, what we are told is going to be immediate short-term relief to come out of the working group. Uh, that was as of last Monday. Government functions on its own timelines, so we continue to wait.
0: If you don't mind, let me just finish off on the two three two component. If, sure. If, if you don't, so you, you've given lots of reasons there. I mean, you genuinely believe that this is a security issue, not an economic oh, one. So you know, what stopped the U.S. government going and you know getting everything they need from
1: the well, Canadians, here's yeah, the here's Australians,
0: the, the Africans?
1: Well, the, the the problem is, is that the general belief in this, there, this isn't the first Section 232. The first one was brought in 1988 because we had actually uh, gotten down to the point where we were only providing 37.5% of our own needs, down from 100% less than a decade earlier. So, we found ourselves in a position back in 2017 where approximately, Uh, 93% of our fuel needs were coming in from outside the United States. And the utilities would make the argument that, well, this is not a problem because, of course, we can get all that we need from our good friends, the Canadians or the Australians Mm. or others around the world. Well, sadly, we all have come to believe and understand that that's not true. Australia's production is really, basically, down to whatever um, BHP produces there uh, uh, as a byproduct, uh, um, and, and uh, the uh, Canadians are only producing now out of one facility at Cigar Lake. They have shut down the largest production facility in the world because the economics simply do not support it, and they don't have long-term contracts to support it. So the harsh reality is, is that now especially after there was no action taken on 232, we find ourselves in the just dangerous position of being 100% reliant on outside sources, foreign sources for all of our nuclear fuel. And yet it supplies 20% of our base lows. So So um, while I am, uh, I am grateful that we have Donald Trump in the White House because he is a supporter of nuclear and it's nice to have that for a change, Uh, We understand we were not the constituency of the Obama administration. I don't want this to become political. But it's nice to have a friendly in the White House for our industry. And I think that when when he's saying now that, well, we have become energy independent. Well, yeah, except for that 20% that nuclear accounts for of our baseload, which we are 100% reliant on foreign powers for. And sadly now, because of the closure of MacArthur River, Whereas before, we were about 40% reliant on Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan, we are now well in excess of 50% reliant on those 3 countries. And keep in mind, this is something that's imperative to understand, and that is that the Russians actually control and own a significant portion of the Kazakh production. So, when you take a look at this, this is not just, well, we're getting the bulk of it from Kazakhstan and they're a market economy they're a relative friendly so we can rely on them. Well, no. Vladimir Putin owns it, he controls it, and he will dictate where that material goes and when. So, this is something that is not well understood, but we have liked to think that we've done a pretty good job of making the Department of Defense, Department of Commerce, and Department of Energy well aware of this. So, now as we're facing a whole new battle with the Russian suspension agreement, these things are coming into play, and the battle lines have been drawn.
0: Okay, but like I, said, I think before we start this interview, I think you suggest that perhaps there's another conversation to be had there before we get drawn into the politics and geopolitics um, of this. So let's let's come on to the recent announcement. This is 150 million bucks over a year for the next 10 sure. years. It's the the articles to me. The, the statement to me, and the subsequent articles, they seem quite vague. There's no real clarity as to who that's going to, where it's going, how it's being divided up. It's just a number which seems to be plucked from the air. Um, that's correct. What do you know?
1: Well, here's the situation. What we did is that we were taken through. We had the same questions by the way. We were taken through the process. Right now what is happening is that the there are appropriation committees, both on the Senate and on the House of Representatives side. They are kicking this thing back and forth. And, and as you as you Here in this country, when there are appropriations added to the budget, we generally refer to it as pork. And the negotiations take the form of my pork's better than your pork, so my pork needs to stay in, your pork needs to come out. What we have been told is that Congress is hoping to have a joint budget, now take that for what it is, by sometime in April, but no later than May. Problem is, is that we're now in an election year. So, uh, Senators like Mitch McConnell and others high profile have said, we will not take up, even when we have a budget that we think we can move forward with, we will not take up the real intense negotiations until after the elections. So, to paint a really, unfortunately, a bit of an ugly picture here, if you can imagine, we get into the first week of November, now let's, whatever the outcome of the election is, now we're going to really start fighting over the budget. Now it's my pork has to stay in and your pork has to get out. It uh, becomes much more strident, much more intense. So that's okay. The problem is, is that you've got the Thanksgiving break, which will send them all home for five days. And what I think will happen then is that it's going to be a knockdown, down, down and out, bloody fight all the way up until the day before Christmas Eve, and they'll come up with something last minute that everybody thinks they can live with and mainly so that they can go home for Christmas. So, sadly, that's the way we do things. I,
0: I, no, I'm, that's, I think that's fascinating. And and this and I do want to get into your business model, your plan. Okay, You are working and operating in a very complex, but also difficult commercial environment right now. Okay, And yeah. I've got to admire all of the CEOs are having to do what they need to do to survive, except for the ones who are... Uh, Perhaps being economical with the truth—not so much them, but there's a there's a great group of hardworking CEOs who're trying their best to do the best for shareholders. And I want to talk about what you're doing now. You—I've read you've been you've been through a cost-cutting exercise. You've renegotiated uh, payment terms, and I suspect contracts. And that's not easy. Like, you know, I've been I've been in that situation myself. These are commercial and human decisions you're making. I mean, can you talk people through some of the things that you've had to do over the past couple of years, two, three years to actually get to this point?
1: Sure. Let's keep it down to a manageable timeframe. Four years ago, I was just under 100 employees. Today I'm 30. And we've that represents uh, four reductions in force. And the last one was probably the most difficult of all. And that was because you're starting to, when you get down to that low, you're starting to cut into guys that have been with you eight, nine, ten years. That is extremely that difficult.
0: hurts. That hurts. Yeah. But what
1: we did is that most importantly is that we have not waited for somebody to to kick us in the behind and say, look, you guys need to cut costs. We have always been way out in front of that. We've always been very proactive on that. When everyone else decided, look, we've been slaughtered because we didn't get what we wanted. Our shares have just been you know, cut by 40%. We've lost 40% of our value. we got to get out there. we got to market. We've got to try and get our share price back up. We didn't do that. Frankly, I didn't see much point. Uh, I didn't think that there was a very big audience. A lot of folks had just been burned because they had been speculating on what the outcome of 232 would be. So, we decided to stay home, clean off our own front porch. We went department by department we engaged in cost cutting that was extremely severe but very very effective we did a reduction in force where we took down into another 12 uh, another 12 uh, highly experienced and long-time employees came out as well in addition to that we restructured our debt with the state of Wyoming our industrial revenue bond where we are now have gone from making a quarterly payment of one and a half million dollars per year, a quarter. To where it's one hundred and seventy-eight thousand dollars per quarter, and for the next six quarters, that will save us seven point eight million dollars. So, it's been things like that that we've had to do, but we felt that it was critical. That's, the, that's it, it, just it, be
0: clear. That's deferred, we that's deferred right? That's we had to have the runway. You had the runway at it, but that money's been deferred. It hasn't been written off by. That's correct. Okay. Okay. Got that's it. That's correct. Okay. So you're, you you need you're basically saying I, we need to cut, cut. We've got some revenue coming in, which is great. And I do want to talk about that in a second, but the, the cost-cutting bit is, is the bit which is, it gets you to say the runway, to use your, your, your phrase, down the line. So that you're not going to shareholders sure. and asking for more money to sit around do nothing. Okay. Um, so let's, let's talk about the production bit. And once we've understood the revenues coming in and the costs, then maybe we're going to have a useful discussion about you know, what that looks like today. So you, last year, 2019 looked like what in terms of sales?
1: Well, we had a good year last year and we just came out with our financials last Friday. Uh, we ended up delivering into the market £665,000 of Uranium at an average price of 48.50, just under $49 per pound. Yeah. We chose to purchase um, more than two thirds of those pounds and we purchased them at an average cost of $26 in the marketplace. And so we were able to effectively scrape the Delta out of that between the, Shares that we were delivering into our contracts and our purchase price in the marketplace. So we actually had a quite good year. We did 32 million in gross revenues. We ended up with gross profits of 12.2 million. And unfortunately, most of that was wiped out because we are you know, we no longer have the large scale contracts moving out into 2021. We had to now write down our inventories to a level to reflect current marketplaces, whereas before. As long as we could say to the auditors, well, I've got $48 contracts out there. These pounds have a value of $48. Now I have to say they have a value of $25 because just like Cameco and others in the industry, we're coming to the end of this contracting cycle. And so, we have limited contracts moving forward. Both this year, we're only going to deliver about 200,000 pounds at $42 a pound, again, with a purchase price of $26 a pound. And next year, we go down to the, virtually nothing. It's under a hundred thousand pounds that we have for deliverables. Okay. Deliverance.
0: Well, first, I like the fact that you're being honest about the inventory levels and and, and what it, what it represents on the balance sheet. Again, we interview too many companies who uh, try and deceive on, on that. Point. No, I've been
1: accused of being too transparent.
0: <laughs> okay. That's never a bad thing. Um, so let's talk about these contracts so people understand them again, because there's going to be a wide range of understanding here. There's some guys on watch this thing who are wonderfully informed, and others are coming new to it, looking at the macro story for uranium and thinking, well, maybe now's the time with prices as they are to be getting in here. So, let's try and try and describe the uh, contract versus spot of, of, for, for those people, well, if
1: you may. Absolutely. At the present time, spot price, let's just call it twenty-four fifty. I think that that's probably a good workable number. And uh, while there are a number of reporting services in terms of pricing, I think that uh, probably a usable number is right at around $31 to $32 a pound on term price. And typically, you're going to have that kind of a delta between spot and term. Now, what we've seen over the last several years is that we've seen kind of a reversal, what used to be 10 years ago, that 90% of the material that was sold into the market was done so under term contracts. Of course, that's no longer the case. Uh, you've seen the reports probably out of UX, Trade TradeTex or, or others where now the the vast majority or the majority of the material that is being transacted is being transacted in the spot market. So, sadly, that's the, that's the situation we find ourselves in right now. And that does not lend itself to an entering into any new contracts. Moving forward, not for us, not for Cameco, not for anybody.
0: Okay. So, and break break that down for me. You said obviously you've had a few contracts from 2018, 2019. You've got this £270,000, which you said will be at, sold at your discretion. That means I assume that's that correct. there's no contracts against those. And that's more likely. Contracts typically are higher than spot price. Again, for the for audience at home, you <laughs> sold quite a significant average. Your average. Your pounds were sold at about 60 bucks. You obviously bought in the market. You sold the Delta. Your average was somewhere in the 40s. So you, you had a good year Very last good year. Very good quarter right? in the fourth
1: quarter. Yeah.
0: This year, with your two, 270,000 pounds, that's going to be somewhat different. So, how much value are you attributing to that?
1: Well, here's the situation. The last time I gave a public presentation, I had one of our existing shareholders and say, Hey, how good? what kind of year are you going to have in 2020? And I said, Well, not trying to be evasive, but that depends. And what that depends on is if we sell our inventories and if we do, at what price we sell them. So, I think it's important to understand that, first of all, we do it. We have solid cash coming into the year and we've got revenues from our remaining contracts. Those are enough to get us through to the remainder of the year. Okay. Now, once we get to into the fourth quarter of 2020, the question will become, have we been able to sell our contracts? Now, this is why we're waiting for the most recent Report that is due any time now. We were told it was going to be coming out on Monday or Tuesday. It's government. I don't place much stock in that. I'll believe it when I see it. So, I've been at this long enough to know that um, government. What 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 my government means by immediate is not necessarily what I mean by immediate, and what they mean uh, what they mean by relief may not. Mean well, what th- I th-
0: there's a, I've got a small anecdote for you. I, when I was working in Africa and when I was told by government officials it would be done now, it didn't necessarily mean now. What the, if, the, the phrase you were looking for was, it will be done now now, which meant now <laughs> to you and me. Yeah. So I, I have some sympathy. What if, our,
1: what if our director spent a lot of time in Africa and he said the favourite phrase in Africa is, is it can happen any time from now.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right. Sure. <laughs> sorry to interrupt, but yeah, if if we can just um, talk about just contracts just a little bit longer here, because sure. um, you described earlier in, in this interview your scenario or you what you think the scenario would be politically this year. There's a lot of events which would possibly prevent government from making any meaningful decisions. So, we're looking towards the end of the year, and I think that's an honest appraisal. Um, that's correct. You've got enough money. At the start of this year, and the the end of some of these contracts to generate revenues to see you through to the end of the year. Plus, you'll have your two hundred and seventy thousand pounds at your discretion to do something with, if you can get a contract or a spot price which reflects your value, your desired uh, value for that. Where does that put you in twenty
1: twenty one? Well, I think you've driven down to. I think you've you've drilled down to the heart of it now. It, it all comes down to the contracts and what we're hoping for, and this is why when, if you were to watch, for example, uh, Secretary Burlett, when he was testifying in front of the Senate Energy Committee on Monday morning, we had Senator Barrasso in there peppering him with questions asking him, well, when are we going to see this report? It's critical to us because one of the things that we've been talking to these guys about is the fact that, look, guys, it doesn't do me any good if you help me two years from now." it doesn't do me a good three years from now. I'm in better position than anybody else in the industry. And I, I know that by the time I get into second quarter of 2021, whether be, by that time I will have sold my inventories, I'll need to raise money. Most of the players in our industry have lived equity raise to equity raise. It's just what it is. And they've done that ever since Fukushima. We haven't had to do that. We've only raised 22 million dollars since Fukushima. We've been very fortunate. But what we're hoping for, and what we have spoken to Larry Kudlow about, what we've spoken to each and every one of the members of the working group about, is the fact that we need immediate relief. Now, what what form might that take? Well, for the two producers, the two legitimate producers that remain, ourselves and Energy Fuels, that immediate relief we hope will take the form of the purchase of our existing inventories. Does that solve all of our problems? No. But if you were to give me a higher price than spot price for the sale of those inventories, those are domestically produced pounds, they can be used to convert and enrich and become what is called unobligated material. That's critical because if you're going to use it for military purposes in any way, if our government is going to use it for their purposes, it needs to be. Unobligated materials. So, what we are hopeful of is that we will see something out of the working group, that it will provide immediate relief in terms of purchasing our existing inventories, and that will extend our runway and give us more time to see things like the line item in the budget, produce right. contracts, of course.
0: Okay. Again, a lot of a lot of things there. So, the qu- the question was, what happens in twenty twenty one? And I think you you've gone back to, well, depends what if there are any meaningful announcements if I have between
1: now. I'm pretty good to go right on through to about q two of twenty one.
0: Okay, fine, and okay. that's my runway. and that gives me a sense of what the what the margin your expected margin is on the two hundred and seventy thousand okay just on and again the one the one fifty million the, this you know this whole discussion and you know um, being, being pressing the government, you've said the government works on its own own timeline, and whatever it says doesn't equate to uh, meaningful economics in any way until the, you know it's not until the money's in the bank it's not in the bank right so what do you think you're going to be able to persuade the government to buy from you at or what do you want what price will you need for them to buy at well, because they're, 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 they're taking guidance from you guys aren't they they don't no, really know this question.
1: space. They've asked, and we have provided this data to them, not only during 232 did we provide a lot of data to the Department of Commerce, but even the working group itself. We have provided, we formed our own core working group, and that included not only ourselves in and energy fuels, but the conversion and the enrichment as well. And presented our own white paper to the White House, to Larry Kudlow as chairman of the working group, uh, to make our case. Now, at what price they may purchase, that, of course, is the complete unknown. I think that um, if you talk to somebody like a Tim Gitzel over at Cameco, he has been quoted as stating, look, I wouldn't even look at restarting production in the United States unless I could get somewhere around $60 or greater per pound. And so, I'm going to say that If that's a number that's good enough for Gitzel, it's good enough for me. But we have demonstrated that we can not only function well at $60 a pound, I think people have seen how we've functioned at $50 a pound. One of our concerns, quite candidly, and this is something that I I don't know if it is a bit indelicate for me to share, is that uh, there are others out there that are not producers. uh, And there are only 2 legitimate producers left in the United States, what representations they may make, and what contracts they might be willing to enter into, whether there's a reasonable prospect for them to be able to deliver into those contracts, is another matter. So it's a bit of a wild card for us.
0: This is a subject we talked about before um, with with uh, with other uh, CEOs. Um, you've you've produced, you've sold to utilities, you've sold into market. Tell me this. What do you think the chances of a utility sitting down with a uranium junior whose pounds are in the ground and saying, "I'll give you something I'll give you a contract for something is that is that reality
1: I think that they may, but I think that they're going to be very guarded. I think what they're going to do and this and and Look, I, I know all the utility buyers. I see them at all the conferences. We've done business with six of them when we uh, had all of our contracts in place, extending all the way out through the end of the decade. Which, by the way, in 2014 and 15, seemed like a long time. Okay, so five years went by quickly. But uh, you know that um, when you talk to those guys, I think a, a couple of them um, said, "Well, you know, you guys haven't produced yet, so." We won't give you maybe the two hundred thousand pounds that you're asking for, but we'll go one hundred with you, or we won't give you three hundred. Ask for we'll go one fifty, and you have to prove yourself. I mean, look, these guys have seen it all, Mm. and one of the things you need to understand about the utilities is that the buyers are they're smart guys. They've been in the industry a long time. They've seen it all. They know all the players. I mean, the one thing about our industry is that the the DBS doesn't go very far. And the reason being is because they know those projects as well as we know them ourselves. Not only are we getting to be a very small fraternity at this point of producers or prospective producers, but the utilities, they can look at a project and we can say, well, you know, we think we can produce this project, let's call it Shirley Basin. And we think that we can have a cash cost there of under $15 a pound. And they'll say, well, yeah, but that's in this area and that area, but then by the time you get over into this area, don't you expect a little higher cost by the time you get there? Well, you wouldn't expect them to know that much about your projects, but that's their business. They're supposed to. And so I think that, uh, unfortunately, our industry is one that has survived on, uh, I mean this as levity. I call it BS squared. Blue sky times the other BS. And unfortunately, that it's, it's been true, but I think that what's happening here, and I think this is something else that your, your listeners should probably understand, while pounds in the ground may have meant something five years ago, we are rapidly entering a time where fundamentals are going to be pretty much all that matter. If you can't demonstrate that you can produce, do it in a timely manner, do it efficiently, and remember something else. It's not just about getting to that level. You got to get there and you got to stay there. That's that's really tough. I mean, you got to get to a million pounds and you got to stay at a million pounds. Come hell or high water, rain or shine, doesn't matter. You got to stay there. And the utilities, when they're giving you those contracts, trust me, they're going to assess that. And so I think that um, you might be able to smoke them to a minimal extent, but not to a great extent. I think that look, they've we've had utilities sit down with us recently and say, look, we know what you can do. We know what chemical can do. We know what energy fuels can do. Anybody else, we don't know.
0: Well, so. it's, it's it's an inter- interesting uh, area for debate as well because again, we have spoken to a lot of uh, G- uranium juniors all, from all around the world, and you know the management teams have varying degrees of they're, ability they're good guys, and experience. And they they, they, they are
1: production. They're hard.
0: Absolutely working hard. The, the the tough bit here is walking into not getting some fund to invest in your equity because they're 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 taking a bet on the Uranium space, but funding the CapEx to develop these things out, and, and they, they, these have some pretty big numbers here, right?
1: Very these days you've got to be the real deal. Yeah, I mean, I mean look, I'll, I'll tell you, for us personally, I mean, we went to one of the big French lenders, right? We won't designate who they are, but they said to us, look, you guys seem like you've got a great project here, great management team, but you've never produced before and you still need to build this thing out. Hmm. So they just told us quite candidly. We won't fund you the first time around, but come to us the second time after you've been producing for 4 or 5 years and we're all over it. And so we have those type of capital options open to us.
0: But that's the the gap I'm concerned about in the marketplace with, you know, 50 players now, down from the heights back in the day, 500, 450, 500 Uranium companies, um, down to 50, more manageable. But I just feel that that that's that initial hurdle is the biggest hurdle you Know, of course, I used to say the same phrase we'll give you the money after you've got it going. You know, we'll, you know, as I always, always say, you know, bankers offer you uh, an umbrella when it's uh, sunny, uh, you know, and I think um, <laughs> it's a little bit late there, so you know, so we, 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 you know, some of those companies that we've spoken to can't give us the answer to how they get that initial either cornerstone investor or you know institutional from wherever um, to get this thing going you know getting a couple of small contracts is not going to be enough to get some of these banks to move because it's too risky, it's far too risky. so do you see how do you how do you see these small companies enabling themselves to get funded? what do they need to say? what do they need to do
1: Well, unfortunately, first of all, I think that you, your your number is a bit high and saying, are there fifty companies out there? I would say there's less than 50, and the vast majority of them are explorers, usually in Canada or Australia. Mm. Um, When it comes to those that are actually capable of producing, that number gets down to a dozen or less. When it gets down to the number in the United States that may actually have the capability of producing, and particularly for government purposes, say, under the 150 line item in the budget, or something else that may come out of the working group, or whatever the case might be, well, now that number gets still smaller. And and unfortunately, that is… There's what's, the rough, the, I mean, what's, the,
0: what's the number, Jeff? Is it 2?
1: I think that there are potentially, and I say potentially 4.
0: Okay.
1: And, and and I think that, and but now keep something in mind here, and this is something that we, by the way, uh, recently received a request for information from the Department of Energy that we filled out. One of the things that we had to list in there as a caveat was, well, keep in mind, this depends, because uh, if the United States were to ramp up to its fullest production capability, you can't do that without Uranium-1 coming back into production, and you can't do it without Canada, without Cameco coming back into production. So, the question here becomes, what are we capable of producing? Well, that depends on a couple of the foreign players that are right now on standby. And so, of the other guys, how do they get there? Well, that's Now you're asking the question that every, frankly, intelligent fund manager should be asking. Look, you know, as well as I do, when you're an issuer, I walk through a lot of portfolio managers' doors, and invariably, the smart ones, the good ones anyway, ask you one question before you leave. What am I not asking? What am I missing? What am I overlooking here? What is the potential landmine you could trip on that could blow all this up for you? And what they're not asking right now is what is your capex to get to any minimal reasonable level of production that you can sustain? And that is the question that's not being asked. And so what I've done and what we've done as a company is what we've looked at everybody and we've looked at the players that we believe even have a reasonable shot of getting into production, how long it would take them to get there, and we've just decided, okay, let's let's come up with a number that that we apply to everybody. Let's call that a two million pound per year run rate. Okay, two million pounds per year. What's it going to cost for you to get there? Not just get there, but sustain it. Well, we know what that number is. It's in our PowerPoint. It's on our website. For us to get there, we can get to a million, million and a quarter pounds per year out of Lost Creek. I can do do it for about fourteen to fifteen million dollars. Shirley Basin is going to cost me about twenty-five because I have to build a satellite plant there. So, for me, that number is over a two year period of time, it's about $40 million. More than likely, I would go out there. I would probably do debt financing against contracts. I won't build out. Nobody's going to build out without contracts in hand. They simply will not. So, what we will do is that we can get there for about $40 million. More than likely, at least half of that will be debt, and we would only be very selective. I I hate issuing shares. Everyone knows that about me. I'm very stingy when when it comes to that, and that's what my shareholders like about me. I mean, uh, the last proxy I got, 99.6 percent of the vote. I'm not even sure Warren Buffett gets that, but uh, they know that I don't issue their shares willy-nilly. I won't. So I think that it comes down to I can do it for 40 million dollars. Now, you you pick a name. What's that number for them? What's their timeline to get to that two million dollars of sustainable two million pounds rather? of sustainable production. So I think that what we need to do here is we need to change the dialogue a little bit in terms of, let's just assume, let's just give you the benefit of the doubt and assume that you can get to this two million pounds per year. What's your timeline? What's your cost? And more importantly, what's your dilution to your shareholders in getting there? I know what mine is.
0: That's the name of the game. That's the name of the game.
1: Um, At the end of the day, it's the only thing that matters, right?
0: Absolutely, sir. Well done. on that basis some uh, some companies are going to struggle are you seeing any or have you had any discussions uh, about mergers jvs acquisitions asset possibly. sales possibly but i can't say right
1: well we've had in the last 5 years we've had three offers for the company and and of course none of them were adequate they were all i would classify as opportunistic that's fine that you would expect guys to do that um, and that's been other players in the space and it's been private equity so, uh, you know, look, I mean, look, I'm, the, I'm a lean, clean machine. Everyone knows that I'm the lowest cost producer. I've got years of production ahead of me. If you're going to make a grab for anybody in this space, who are you going to buy? Well, <laughs> we, we know who we are. We have no illusions about that. So, for us, I think that, uh, yes, there's, there's always those ongoing conversations. There's absolutely nothing imminent. And uh, the problem is, is that over the last 3-4 years, as we have evaluated a number of these opportunities, the harsh reality is, is, well, this guy will sink me in about a year. If I merge with this guy, he's going to sink. It won't be quite as bad. He'll sink me in about a year and a half. And this guy, he'll sink me in about two and a half years. So, But the one thing they all have in common is they'll sink me. So, I can't, it, it, for me, it's all about, you know, guys, I know what I can do. I know that I can sustain myself in a very difficult environment. We've demonstrated that, and we've demonstrated we can do that without diluting our shareholders to oblivion. The only interested, the only reason you're interested in doing something with me is because you know you can't do that. So, it's it's the harsh reality of the market that we find ourselves in right now. But I like to believe that uh, the fundamentals are are actually turning. That I believe that the the supply demand fundamentals will begin to reassert themselves. We have a lot of new reactors starting up at a faster pace than they're shutting down, where we are technically, we are a growth industry. And, the, but the bottom line for us, and this is probably the most crucial to understand, is that our government, we have put this thing in the national dialogue. We've put it on the national stage with 232 and with the working group. And the one thing that our government has been forced into, a they've been forced into an uncomfortable position. And that uncomfortable position is, is what are we willing to do to save the fuel cycle in the united states because if we don't save the fuel cycle we lose our seat at the table we've been the primary gatekeeper we've been the primary deterrent to nuclear proliferation for the last 70 years since the beginning of the nuclear age and what are we going to do already countries like the saudis well, the russians are going to build their first few reactors they're going to they're going to build them out they're going to design them they're going to fuel them they'll eventually decommission them and hey we'll we'll pay for the first two or three. We can't say anything like that. The Saudis have said to our State Department, well, why should we do business with you? You guys don't even have a fuel cycle left. They're right. And so, if we want to continue to be players in the game, and particularly if we want to continue to be that deterrent to the nuclear proliferation, I mean, look, the bad guys around the globe right now that are going rogue and causing a lot of trouble, whether it's North Korea, Iran, Pakistan, or whomever, Mm. they didn't get it from us. What are we going to do? We're we going to cede that seat at the table to the Russians and the Chinese? We can't do that.
0: Kind of feels like the Americans already have ceded that uh, seat in reality. Well, but hey, Jeff, that's I a conversation really for another day. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a conversation for another day. Jeff, I want to say sure. thank you very much for being so candid and refreshingly honest and straightforward about what you see is going on here. <laughs> I'm interested Funny, in your The timing. utilities
1: find my candor to be a bit off-putting. Thank you for appreciating. Well, time.
0: I guess I guess share, shareholders and buyers would have uh, two different sets of uh, goals. Um, okay. But look, we should we should um, we should uh, catch up again and talk about that geopolitical uh, component because that does I think that's fascinating. I genuinely yeah, think I'll tell you when
1: I really I'll, I'll be willing to do that when I feel like really getting in trouble with the utilities. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we might have to Until defer then. Look, there, there are a lot of positive things going on and I'll leave your viewers with this thought. Um, we tend to understate we're not overly promotional. In fact, we've been accused of being too transparent and, and not promotional enough. But the one thing I know for a fact is that I've given myself great runway. I wouldn't trade positions with anybody else out there in the industry and I know every other player intimately. I can ramp faster than anybody else. I can do it at lower cost and I can do it at last pain and dilution to my shareholders. There's only one of us that gets to say that. That's your energy.
0: Let's finish on that note. Thank you very much for your time. Let's stay in touch. Uh, great, great to hear from you. And, and I hope there's some news. It looks like it won't necessarily be today, but hopefully next week. And um, love to get your view on that when it does come
1: let's out. Let's yeah. Once we get something from the working group, let's hope that it's something as positive as we're hoping that it's going to be. And um, doing uh, another one of these on the heels of that uh, would be quite instructive.
0: Beautiful. Thanks for your time. Have a great
1: weekend. We will. We our warm temperatures here. Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.